So when did you get a sister? <laughs> I think it was in the second season of the show. Yeah, I think that was a Buffy. great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Can't remember if that was second or third season. <laughs> Buffy gets a sister. It was like, hey. Today, we're joined by a special guest, my sister, Alana Schaefer. Alana is a master's candidate at Temple University in the public history program. She has a special interest in interpreting historic sites of trauma. Alana is also a member of Thank You Places, Philadelphia's premier musical improv troupe. Hello, Alana. Hello. Hello. Alana, this is not our first time podcasting together. It's not. It's good to be, it's good to be back. In the pod game. In the pod game. <laughs> uh, Alana and I used to run a podcast together called Games People Play, which I think has now actually been, I think it's deceased from the internet. I don't think it exists on the internet anymore. Oh, collector. It can't be downloaded anymore? It, I let, the, I let the, uh, the like hosting on it lapse. So I think it has, I think I've let it go to the internet, you know, gods. Oh, no. It's in the Disney vault. We can, we can bring it back later. <laughs> um, Somebody call Lucas. <laughs> so, Alana, you are here with us today because I know, I mean, you've followed Questlandia along since Questlandia won as my mm -hmm. sister, and you had had this really cool idea for an episode that talks about, like, how historical narratives are created and the fact that, like, the creation of the narrative of history is not without bias. Yeah. In some episodes, uh, I had heard you guys talk about, you know, museums and telling stories and how we tell these stories and what's left behind. And I was mad that I was not a part of that conversation. So <laughs> there I am. Yeah, you were like, we why couldn't stonewall you forever? Yeah, why didn't I get the memo? So Alana, I know that you... Uh, have a pretty good sense of some of our goals for Questlandia too. But just to kind of get us caught up, I was thinking that maybe we could go over some of our goals, both for the meta plot and for these like worlds within worlds uh, in the game. And you can help us brainstorm some ideas for like how historical narratives get created and also maybe help us understand where some of our own biases may be coming into play when it comes to like, you know, our own ideas of what it looks like to craft history. Sounds great. Great. Um, Evan, do you want to talk about some of our goals for Metaplot? Yes, I do. So the Metaplot for Questlandia involves the junk poets, the ones who are going into all the different worlds, having adventures, learning stuff about societies, and then popping out back into their own wasteland of a world where they're going to try to make use of what they've learned in the worlds that they're exploring. So the overarching idea of that kind of story is one of rebuilding, of taking what you've learned and creating a new kind of society, a better kind, getting a rounded idea of what's possible when people come together and try to make something. So ideally pretty uplifting story, slow burn. It's over the course of months that it gets pieced together. It's still pretty vague. We don't know exactly what you're taking back from the worlds and what the mechanics are for improving the world of the junk poets. But that, that's the vague idea. Does that sound right to you, Hannah? Yeah, that sounds right to me. So no historian needed. <laughs> <laughs> but the junk poets are basically doing the work of a historian, depending on right. what you see the role of a historian as being. But, you know, if it's to investigate what happened in the past in order to be better <laughs> and make better choices uh, than they are historians. 
Well, and it's, you know, I mean, in talking about the meta plot, it's brought up a lot of questions too about like, if we are for the first time looking at the worlds that we create in Questlandia from like intentionally from an outsider's perspective, like it kind of creates this, I feel like it has this potential to create like a little bit of a colonialist narrative um, that I want to be really just aware of in the game. Does that make sense? Yeah, it shouldn't be like looting and pillaging these worlds of their best ideas and taking them back for ourselves. But even, I mean, the the nice privilege that you get as opposed to a historian is that you are inventing, you know, the story and the people. There's a, a, another level of ethical responsibility you have when you're dealing with real people that, you know, existed. Um, but I think it's at least interesting to think about it from a similar perspective. And certainly in history, uh, one of my professors calls it public history colonizers. Like basically if you go in uh, to research and you are only you know, mining a, a culture or a community for how it can benefit your research, then you are a colonizer basically. Um, and there was also a, an interesting movement uh, called post-colonialism in uh, kind of the, the history of history, uh, which was uh, kind of pioneered by some Indian writers that were noting that a lot of uh, a lot of the histories that were being written about the East, uh, India, Asia, that sort of thing, they were written when Western nations came in and colonized them, right? And so then people from the West decided to write the histories of those spaces, but they were writing them with a Western perspective, naturally. And so that's kind of where we get this idea of third world countries, is that when the West went in to write the histories of the East, they wrote histories that only moved in one direction. And that direction was like along the same progress path as the West, assuming that everyone is on this path. And then if you're not, you know, working towards or that everyone is automatically working towards modernity, like the West, and that if you're not, you're just behind, not that you might be on another path. Uh, so we end up with all these narratives of countries that are just behind and need to catch up and need to modernize uh, rather than kind of accepting them on their own terms. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility on, I don't want to make people going into play a game <laughs> feel like they are colonizers, but um, <laughs> no, I think it, you know, it's, it has just brought up this interesting, I don't know, this new framing for me of like, if now that we're introducing this meta plot, it feels like we at least have the responsibility to tell the players like what the junk poet's role is to these stories that they are engaging with or retelling. You know, are they opening up a book and reading? Are they, you know, by like that their choices <laughs> and this is where it ends up getting so meta because like their choices are framed by their experiences, which are ultimately framed by your experiences <laughs> as a player. Like you are playing Golgor, the slug king. <laughs> in, uh, and then you were playing like Jacqueline, the junk poet playing Golgor, the slug king. Like ultimately you're Hannah playing Jacqueline, obviously playing a slug king, because that's the only character you ever play. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think what it always comes down to, especially in this study of history, is that history making is a form or storytelling even is a form of power. It can be empowering if the person who's impacted by history is doing the history making themselves. But in Whichever way it is, it is a form of power. So, you know, with great power and all that. <laughs> so, every time we explore one of these worlds, well, we have a lot of freedom already built into our world building system. You can make a lot of different kinds of worlds, they can be different scales. And we've talked a lot about how we want to make sure that, you know, even the length of time 
that you spend in this world is variable. It could be a story that takes months to tell. It could be as short as a single session, a dip into this world. And that suggests to me that we'll be telling different kinds of stories in the worlds as well. In Questlandia 1, the stories were always the same length. Every character had three scenes. They all had a goal they were shooting for. And you see how close you get to your goal and how far the society declines over those three turns. Then you tell an epilogue. So we definitely can't just stick to that. We're going to have different kinds of stories. And I feel like starting with historical narratives as a way to to get some ideas about what kinds of stories could be laid out in these worlds and how to frame them to make them feel distinct, not just by, you know, this world has ants and the other one was slugs, but on the extent that like, we just told a completely different kind of story. We learned something new. The focus was on a different stretch of time and make each new world exciting because of how different a story is possible when you go into it. Yeah. No, I mean, the yeah, the, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear, you know, there's a lot of discussion actually, especially right now in history about this question of scale, because obviously you can tell a uh, history that goes back thousands of years and it's all part of the same story. And then there's also something called micro histories, which is maybe one person or one location or one commodity or something like that that's followed throughout time or maybe that's yeah so cool. just explored at one book we read to talk about micro histories was uh, a book called cheese and the the cheese and the worms uh by carlo ginsburg which is about this guy that lived in oof, uh, like 15th century italy no difference 13 14 15th century but um <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here folks uh, no offense our historian too. our resident historian um it, uh, that's just not my my time period but it was you know old old italy and uh they found these, or the, the historian who wrote the book found these court records from a guy who was saying a bunch of blasphemous stuff. So he was uh, imprisoned for it. And he had all of these crazy beliefs about how heaven worked and how spirituality worked. And through just his testimony in his court case, that was the whole book, you know? but it was uh, a launching point to kind of understand, okay, well, if he was talking about God in this way, that's language he probably got from this book. And this book was popular at the, you know, so it's even the most narrow of stories, even coming from the mind of one exceptional person who probably didn't think like anyone else at the time can still tell you these very narrow focused stories can actually kind of be expanded out and tell you a lot about the world that that person was living in. That's really cool. I really like, uh, I don't know, it, it gives me sort of this idea for a mechanic that maybe already exists or has been used in games before, but the idea of like introducing an NPC uh, and one player gets to say like, but why did they do this? Or like, what was that book that they just threw? Yeah. Or, you know, like, can we learn a little bit more about their parents? And obviously that's making a decision to uh, create a game that could have these sort of branching mini narratives that don't ultimately seem like they serve the larger plot. But I don't know, something I've always liked. We had a discussion in class when we read that book about kind of, you know, this person was exceptional and it seems like someone who was by all regards unexceptional would maybe tell you more about the time 
that you're studying uh, because they were, you know, a quote unquote average person. But I think it just shows that you can mine anyone, uh, anyone's thoughts and words to understand more about their context. It sounds really cool to me to set up a story around a single character where you say like the the focal point of the story we're about to tell about this world is this character within it and that's going to be our starting point from which we branch out and learn about the whole world and you know what to make of it it seems like alana like when you when you mentioned the idea of like a person in history whose story is exceptional I feel like I can sort of draw connections between that and the idea of a dominant narrative too, and like what it looks like to be, you know, for history to be written around the concept of a normal person. Because, you know, in in our call prepping for this episode, like we talked about queer histories. And, you know, I can sort of imagine this world where you have more access to queer history instead of it being constantly scrubbed out of the timelines and, you know, that we could be living in a world that looks different if our history books had had more of that. And I mean, that goes for so many histories that are sort of like silenced or whitewashed or, you know, like, like normalized, made to look a certain, like a certain idea of a norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, you know, when history first kind of started as a profession, there was this belief that it could be done scientifically, that there was a, a truth out there to get. And you knew, you know, if you were good enough, you could sleuth it out. But if you think about how we know anything we know about history, it's about what was left behind, right? And so usually what was left behind was created by people who have some degree of power. So for a long time, you have these strongman kind of narratives that are going to be dominated by presidents or you know people who leave extensive official records. Uh, but then there comes this movement of history from below, which was working people, labor movements, um, because people started to kind of expand their idea of what an archive was or what a historical source was. So once you go beyond official documents and you start to incorporate uh, folk songs or poetry or journal entries, you can start to do a little bit more. But, uh, and this is another kind of movement in history of post-structuralism or post-modernism, which basically says that the the language we use and the way we operate in society is still defined by people in power. So even if you have a journal of a queer person in the 18th century, they're still not going to be you know super out <laughs> or at least not in the the language and the terms we have today uh, so even and for so long that's kind of been used as an excuse of you know this where did trans people even come from they didn't exist before 50 years you know and it's like obviously all of these things have existed back to the beginning of time people just didn't have the language to define themselves in those terms uh, at that time and any way in which they probably were living out that history in a true way was not recorded anywhere or left behind. Um, one of the books we read, mm -hmm. it was uh, a micro history. So again, it focused just on these two women, um, Charity and Sylvia, who were two queer women in they moved around a bit, but New England in the around the age of the American Revolution. And the author basically is the whole argument of the book is these women had sex <laughs> because <laughs> because they were I mean, they had no official documents that they were married, but according to the way people talked about them, they were married. Like they lived together. They had a business together. 
they, you know, their cousins and their nephews referred to them as ants. So based on what was left behind, they were in a very committed partnership and people were like strangely, it was just super normal (laughs) for what most people would imagine a same sex relationship would be in the 1700s. But what she had to prove was that this was a sexual relationship because there's also a lot of literature that says like, Oh, well women had these, you know, special bonds. And so there's this bond of sisterhood and it's not necessarily queerness. It's just that, you know, in the 1700s, it was such a special female relationship. And so these queer historians are having to come in and literally just prove that women were also having sex with each other uh not just like really good friends um and it really takes like mining for clues in their letters or in you know she'd find one word in a letter it's like well actually if you you know this was actually code this was slang in the 1700s this would have been a reference to a poem and then that poem that poem's about sex so uh but again the the terms didn't exist and the historian has to be smart about the way you understand people uh, within the terms that they lived at the time. That makes me feel like a really important part of making worlds that have, you know, really significant differences than our current culture is going to be having rules around the language of the worlds you're making because the players are going to be speaking in the cadence of our current mm-hmm. culture and our current moment mm-hmm. in time. And to take any steps out of that and to try to grasp at some concepts that are, you know, either lost to history or won't appear for a long time. We'll need some new language. Like we'll need to find out. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think it's kind of amazing and empowering to think about this recreation of a society that operates out of any framework that we understand from our history or our current world. Um, that's like really amazing and empowering. Um but it's hard to do because I remember uh, because I wrote a paper on this quote, but <laughs> um, the quote was something akin to um, we are never so steeped in history as we, as when we pretend not to be. So it is hmm. a really tough thing to step back and realize how much our history like our personal histories the national history international history societal history how much it has shaped us um but if we're able to separate ourselves from that then the kind of stories you could create in questlandia too could be crazy you know we have this part of the game like this world building part where we're asking questions about the people and the geography of the land and the structures and laws and customs. And I can imagine a question along the lines of like, what is a word that exists in this culture to describe like a ritual or a way of being or a way that people see that doesn't exist in ours? Yeah, the question, you you could also kind of do the opposite um, with a question about like, what kind of things are unspoken in this society. Oh, absolutely. I found that a lot of our questions help to distance the world that we're building from our current society just by the fact that we're asking a question about it. Just by saying, how do people, how do relationships work in this world? And there's like an implicit challenge in that question to not just say, about the same. (laughs) You know? Yeah, it's tricky too, though, because sometimes it's like, like we have to get these questions just right. Or it also can invite sort of like this 
I don't know, like trying to invent something that's like on the other end of this scale of what we perceive as normal that suddenly becomes cartoonish. Yeah. It's, we kind of need questions that frame both sides of that. Some questions that push players to get out of the ordinary and step away from their current culture and others that push them to embrace the humanity of the people in this world or to understand them as grounded beings that have needs and wants and, you know, aren't cartoons. And I think sometimes what we found at least is that the, I don't know, Alana, like you talk about micro histories, that sometimes the smallness of that question is what gets the most humanizing answer. Like rather than asking the players, how do relationships work in this world? You ask like, you know, what's a way that people, I don't know, touch each other to express comfort. Like, that's kind of a weird question. And I don't think I'd want to ask that question in this game. But I'm just trying to think of like drilling down to like the smallness of it, because it's much easier to say like, oh, they put their foreheads together, then answer the question of like, how do relationships work in this world? And you can imagine like, oh, that's a really nice vision, like two people putting their foreheads together quietly to comfort each other. That does sound nice. (laughs) (laughs) Alana, there's a term you introduced us to the last time we were talking, teleology. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what that term means again? I would love to. Um, I'm honestly not sure if I'm if you say it teleology or teleology. I don't know if it matters, but basically, we'll let the yeah. history books yeah. decide. Uh, basically, it's the idea as a historian assuming that the historic actors you're dealing with know the ending of the story because you do, and it can be very hard to remove yourself from teleological thinking, especially when some things are so, so totally ingrained in us and we've kind of accepted it as, or come to think of, of, you know, the colonial victory in the American revolution or a transcontinental United States, we just have come to accept as, like, oh, it was, it was going to happen. Uh, and it could be hard to actually put ourselves in the perspective of people who were living at the time who had no idea what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. None. And in fact, maybe really, I, I, know, <laughs> I just got really way too excited about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Zero. Oh, Zilch. Zip. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I just got kind of obsessed with the idea because it it just makes you think about things in a totally new way. We reread a book that was about how after the um, after the Seven Years War, the British have just won a, a lot of new t- territories in the North America, and so they started on this mapping project of what they thought the borders of these new territories should be. And so they sent these maps over to the colonists living in the, you know, what was not then the United States. And everyone got so pissed off because the maps that they created didn't look anything like the way people were living at the time or the way they imagined the country. Um, And the book has Mm -hmm. this really interesting digital component where you can go and basically look at all of these historic maps and they're superimposed over Google earth. So you can see, uh, you know, the contours of the United States as we know it today, but then you see this map superimposed over it where the lines are so off (laughs) and that kind of stuff just blows my mind. It's like, Oh yeah. Lines aren't real. Borders are fake. Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we create such a big deal yeah i mean the entire it's like a gerrymandering yeah. um yeah like all of geography is gerrymandered basically <laughs> right like these lines we just have grown up with looking at them on maps but they're bullshit <laughs> someone made those lines um 
Um, and it's like sometimes they follow rivers and cliffs and other times <laughs> right. racism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and people wanted lot, you know, there were people who really, there was another book we read that was all about people who were living in the Gulf Coast during the American Revolution. So, you know, usually it's focused on the 13 colonies, but there were all these other people throughout North America at that time. And a lot of people did not want the colonists to win or thought the colonists were just like bullshit. (laughs) They were just like, I don't know. I'm just chilling out here. I'm a French citizen technically living in New Orleans and I'm happy being a French citizen. And I don't know what's going on up there in the North, but they can do whatever they want. I don't know. It doesn't impact me. And then suddenly, you know, a few years later, they're suddenly an American citizen um so yeah i I don't know how if it's helpful at all in in thinking about the way you create stories in games but i think it's it's very fascinating to give it kind of gives more credit to the historic actors as people who just really don't know what's coming next but are going to try to act in their best interest even if they you know, we know they might end up losing, but they believed they were fighting for something that had the potential of, of happening. Yeah. I feel like there's two ways it can relate to the worlds that we're making in Q2. There's the character level, which is the idea of, you know, making sure that the characters in the game don't realize they're in a game. They're, <laughs> they they don't know that the, the decline of their society is going to be mechanically reinforced. They don't know that things are going to get as bad as they are. But then there's another level on top of that, which is proving the players wrong too. And making it so the decisions that we make when we first design this world and the kind of story we're telling in it aren't infallible or unchangeable that some of the assumptions we sort of built into the world at the table could be proven wrong by revelations as you play through the game. I think having that kind of flexibility would be great. Yeah. It's empowering too. You know, I don't think any historic actor wants to know that they were doomed to fail. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's one thing that we haven't, talked about is the idea of like the role of a GM in a role-playing game and that a GM uh, often serves this role as this person that sort of facilitates like the keeper of the history. Um, And like the GM sometimes will have a really specific idea of like the secrets that they are keeping from the players about the world. Uh, And some GMs are really willing to be surprised and see that narrative go in a different direction. Other GMs hold pretty hard and fast to like, no, like this is what got revealed at this time. Like this is what you found in the dungeon. You were going to go left, (laughs) motherfuckers. Like (laughs) Whatever I do, you were going to go left. Questlandia though, doesn't have a GM. And it makes me think of this moment in our our first ever play test that we attempted of Questlandia 2, where we were all, we had this big like showdown with this alien species on this planet that we were like, we thought that we had gotten there first, but it turns out we were, you know, really the sort of bad interlopers and we couldn't understand this other species. We eventually went to war with them. We were looking it was looking like everything was going to be successful in our peace talks and then like in the final what we thought was the final ever like roll of the game we rolled like every single die that we rolled came up a six uh which in questlandia one would escalate your troubles you know by one but every single die came up a six, escalating our world suddenly <laughs> to collapse. And like we like like in a turn, it went from being at like four rolls away from a potential collapse to just happening. And we were like, oh my God. Like, what could have gone so wrong in these peace talks that we just collapsed <laughs> our entire world? And we very quickly pivoted 
And the story took a totally different direction, but it was like such a, like, we all just like sat back from the table and like put our hands on our heads and we were like, (laughs) what just happened? Uh, And those are the moments that I want in this game. Yeah. Totally. And so, yeah, like you said, when, when people in history don't know what is going to happen, like we had, that was a moment where we had no idea. Like we really thought we knew exactly what was going to come next and history uh, wrote itself differently. Yeah. As I remember that night, I think we were like literally like packing up our bags, making the final roll, clearing the snacks off the table. <laughs> and then we ended up staying or <laughs> staying for like two hours, like three more, more hours. Yeah. Being like, everything is exploding there's a war there's it's like like a character died that <laughs> night like we had to kill somebody off because it was the only thing that made sense and we had no idea that was going to happen i love that <laughs> yeah just because yeah when you look back at something that already happened and you start to make you start to draw like causality. So when you look back at a bunch of scattered events, you can start to piece together, oh, well, this people revolted because uh, they got taxed, but whatever. But I don't don't know. (laughs) When it happened, it just happened, you know? It's just (laughs) a bunch of sixes got rolled and everyone revolted. So (laughs) yeah, actually much more true to history and life and society. Um, Yeah. So that last minute calamity in the Questlandia 2 playtest that came out of nowhere and changed the thrust of the story enormously and even prolonged it. Like we were ready to close the whole book. And then it was like, squeeze some more pages in. We're, we're going further. That talks about a sort of conflict that I'm trying to resolve in my own thoughts about how to frame the stories of these worlds that we're exploring, where on one hand, I want them to have a defined structure. And on the other hand, I want that structure to be destroyable, you know, like that we can shift gears and end up telling something totally different. And so to get started with the structure of a story, I like the idea of having an impending event. Like in that one, it was these peace talks. And the whole campaign that we played was leading up to those peace talks and dealt with the aftermath of it. And it was sort of the the aftermath was the first part where we couldn't really say for sure what was coming next, if it would just end there or go further. In history, is there a term for a narrative that's built around a singular event and frames everything as how it led to that event and what the aftermath was? Not really. Um, (laughs) But um, there are a lot of different ways of interpreting events within historical narratives uh, because there's some methods of history that don't even think they're that important. Um, There was a movement called the, uh, it was called the Annal School, it was French. um, So we've just been calling it history's anus, but um, it was (laughs) about like getting into the you know the the depths the annals of of history, um, and they argued that there were actually three different histories uh, that were kind of ex- existed and uh, existed separate from each other in many ways. So there was in sort of environmental history. This is long. This is what they call the long durée. So um, a long why can't I think of what durée is French for? Duration. Um, duration. <laughs> yes. Uh, long duration. <laughs> um, so this is over like thousands of years. And maybe there's an event, maybe there's a very important, like crucial event in there somewhere. But this is kind of the idea that almost every everything that has ever happened up to that event 
was important. Uh, and that includes the shifting of the mountains. Um, that includes like, you know, geology and uh, food science and these things that we might not necessarily think of as historical, but these were, you know, if you look at a long enough swath of time, you can see patterns that ended up shaping, um, the, you know, ended up shaping and impacting that event. Um, I don't want to go on to too much of a tangent here, but there's actually a very good book I read for one of my classes called Misplaced Massacre. That was about the Sand Creek Massacre, uh, which was like a mass uh, killing of Native people in Colorado, I want to say, in the 1800s. And uh, maybe like 20 years ago, in the 90s, early 2000s, uh, they decided to turn the space where the massacre happened into a national park. And there was a whole lot of controversy because the native tribes who were descendants of people who were killed in the massacre had oral histories and they had stories that had been passed down about where it had happened, where the site was. And the historians, the archaeologists come in and they do a little digging and they find some bullet casings and whatever. And they say, actually, based on scientific event, the event happened over here. And so they didn't know where to make the park. And the native people were really upset because here are these scientists were coming in and telling them that their memories and like their whole understanding of their tribal history was wrong. And so after they're going back and forth for the longest time, a geologist or whoever comes in, it was all about like where the bend in this particular river was. This guy comes in and was like, hmm. guys, the river moved. <laughs> like the the river moved. So you're both right and you're both wrong. Um, the whole landscape wow. has changed. Um, so I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's so fascinating. Um, that's you know more of a comment on memory and stuff, but it does show how shifts in rivers and mountains can have an impact in the way we understand and remember big events in history. So that's just one. <laughs> the other two would be history of societies. So that involves this idea called mentalite, basically like the way people think and understand their world. So you're kind of analyzing the way that has changed over time, how people have, you know, kind of what a lot of your questions seem to be asking, how people understand themselves, their world, and relationships to each other. And then the last one, which they think is like the least important is the history of events. Um, but in the analysis... So I was way off base. Yeah. <laughs> in the analysis, it kind of suggests that, you know, it's, it's more important to understand how people understood the world and how, like, the literal physical world changed because that will tell you everything you need to know about why those events happened, which it, not everyone agrees with that mode of history, but I think it is interesting to think about and interesting um, as far as other kind of modes you could maybe involve in, in the game. But then there's also the ideas of, you know, when you look back and you're trying to contextualize, that is your goal as a historian is to contextualize a certain event to explain what caused the American revolution or whatever. There's, Usually history ends up being progressive, right? You're like marching towards something in particular. Uh, but usually that is a moment that the historian has kind of imposed in, in they've made it the climax of the narrative that they're going to tell. So the way that they understand events mm -hmm. are all building up to that moment. Um, but there are also people who argue against that as well. There's declension narratives, which is basically the opposite. Everything is worse by the time the event is over <laughs> for everyone involved um, or just whatever the story was, it ended up declining. It ended up worse than it was when it started. And 
I think that so much of whether you end up telling a progressive or a declining history kind of depends on when you're telling history. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I made an argument in a paper I got a good grade on that. So I must have been right. Um, (laughs) Must have been right, at least by our current historical standards. My one professor um, that uh, declension narratives are getting more common, uh, at least in American history. And I wonder if that has to do with everyone looking around and being like, shit, how did we get here? Um, And so the story they're going to tell is like, here's everything that went wrong to leave us where we are now. Whereas if you're writing at a different time, maybe the story you're trying to tell is like, here's everything that went right to get us to this amazing point in history. Uh, So whether you see history as progressing or declining is kind of going to depend on where you are, but where you as the writer are at the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of these terms are really about how narratives are distorting reality. You know, like what would, what makes a framing device different from reality where the historian comes in and is setting up their own narrative, like because declension or progression stories that's completely on the historian, right? Like they get to choose where the story starts and stops and what kind of note it ends on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's, I mean, that's where that power comes in. You are really, you're taking this jumble of events and feelings and thoughts and words and trying to string it into something. Um, But you, you know, you could be forcing, you could be kind of creating something that doesn't necessarily exist. Um, and that's why it's <laughs> a lot of, a lot of power. Is there, a, is there a term for a story that doesn't progress or decline? Where it's just sort of like stuff happened. Not that I know of, <laughs> but we'll call I've it only Questlandia too. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> never quite declining, but never quite progressing. The story of the creation of Questlandia too. Uh, well, a lot of thank you so much for your time. If people, you know, we have, I think probably a good number of listeners in Philadelphia. If people want to like see you or follow you in the physical space, uh, can you tell them where they would see a Thank You Places show? Yeah, uh, I was about to say, if they just want to follow me in the physical space, they can like bike down 13th. But <laughs> I guess that's all really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so don't do that. <laughs> Crack a window for our listeners. <laughs> but every, every Saturday uh, at the Philadelphia Improv Theater in uh, Center City, 20th and Sansom, uh, I perform with my musical improv troupe, Thank You Places. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, uh, but we perform every single Saturday at 8 o'clock at the Philly Improv Theater. Uh, and the shows are hilarious. Uh, I've seen two of them now. Evan, you've also seen two of them. Mm-hmm. They are like cry laughing hilarious. Uh, they're so funny. Thanks. Um, Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Alana. If you have thoughts and questions about historical narratives, about declension narratives, progression narratives, about the anus of history, about anything (laughs) that we've talked about in this episode, about biases that we should be thinking about, you can tweet to us at designdocpod at gmail. That's wrong. Sorry. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> That's wrong. That's wrong. No, you can't. This was a declension uh, outro. Yeah, this is really a declension. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have thoughts or questions that you want to share about historical narratives, you can tweet to us at designdocpod or email us at designdocpod at gmail. Dot com. Uh, you can also tweet to us personally. I'm Hand Bandit on Twitter. And Evan? I'm A Drawn Novel. 
And Alana, I don't know, are you really on the Twitter? Once a year for the Tony Awards. (laughs) 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 And sometimes when I think of a joke about Pokemon. um, (laughs) Get these hot tweets at? I I always forget if I have the article. Oh, no. Uh, At Revolving Teapot. Uh, And... I just want to acknowledge also that we actually got a lot of great thoughts and questions about episode 19, our last episode about accidentally creating dystopias. And I think maybe it's enough to like do some bonus content or something because it's more than we could possibly do here. But it is really cool when an episode like especially seems to resonate with people. So thank you for giving us your thoughts about how we can continue to strive to not create cartoonish dystopias. So thank you again for joining us, Alana. It was really great to have you on this episode. Anytime. I'll know so much more about history in another year and a half. So. <laughs> The Design Doc intro-outro theme was written by our friend, musician, Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the One Shot Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows like One Shot. One Shot, the most fun way to learn about new games is to listen to them get played. Every week on One Shot, James Diamato brings you actual play recordings with a talented cast of improvisers, game designers, and other notable nerds. Each month features a new group trying a new system, exploring a wide variety of genres. The stories are self-contained, so you can jump in anywhere, and it's a great way to find new games. Discover the magic of RPGs with One Shot on your favorite podcast app. Our next episode will be about putting the theory into practice and actually playing some scenes of the game with rules. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We haven't figured out the title yet. Thanks for listening, heroes. We'll see you soon. Evan, you know, I looked it up. Dawn doesn't enter until the fifth season of Buffy. The fifth season? You have to get through five whole seasons. And does, is she introduced as a baby? or like? No, she's like full grown. Wow. I know. So That's... now we know how my sister feels. <laughs> <laughs> Not even acknowledged until the fifth season. <laughs>